if I'm walking down the street, whether it's in the middle of the day or it's in the middle of the night, right, there are certain things that I can do, certain ways that I can look that make me feel safer and also make me appear less susceptible if someone's looking at me. Welcome, you're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and truths from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or fitness and fat loss to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better, start now. Hey everyone, you're on air with Ella, and today I'm joined by a special guest, Mariam Aziz. Hey Mariam, how are you? I'm doing great today, Ella. How are you doing? I am stoked to talk to you. Gosh, you have an important message to share with everybody, and it's different than anything I've ever done before, Mariam, and I love it for that reason, but I also love it because if this show can help one person or help one person help one person, then that will be just such a gift. So first of all, Welcome. Why don't you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Absolutely. So my name is Mariam Aziz, and I am the chief self-defense instructor for WISE, which stands for the Women's Initiative for Self-Empowerment. I'm also a PhD candidate in American Studies at the University of Michigan. Very cool. Now, Mariam, what on earth brought you to a place in time where you are committed to and passionate about self-defense? It all starts with a 12th birthday, Ella. When I was 12, my father took me on a short 10-minute car drive from our house in South Jersey. Wouldn't tell me where we were going. And we showed up at my local YMCA. And he signed me up for karate classes as my 12th birthday gift. And I have not stopped going in all of that time. And my father tells me to this day, you know, I never actually expected you to last this long. (laughs) (laughs) That is so cool. And what are you doing? I'm just out of curiosity. What do you want to do with your PhD? Yeah. So my PhD research looks at how, you know, activists in the 1960s and the 1970s who were fighting for equality and justice taught martial arts and self-defense and how they did it and how they really thought about their pedagogy and what was the best way to increase people's confidence and their overall bodily safety. And so I'm hoping that at the end of this journey, I'll either go into a tenure track position at a university or continue doing the work that I'm doing here, doing self-defense work in nonprofits. All right. Super cool. And again, you know, this is not a topic we've talked about on the show before, but it's something that I'm an enormous proponent of, something that I want more of and I want to understand more. So, Mariam, thanks in advance for some of the things we're going to talk about today, which includes preventing an attack, resisting attack. Like we're going to get into the nitty gritty with Mariam (laughs) because you guys, she knows what she is talking about. So, Mariam, first of all, why is this important? Can you sort of set the stage for us here? And I think everyone who's sort of alive in this date and time understands it's important to know how to take care of yourself. But I think you can flush this out a little bit for us. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first off, I would say that self-defense has always been important for everyone. And Even now, I think that it's relevant given that particularly one in five American women, for example, will face some sort of attack or sexualized or sex-based attack in her lifetime. But also the statistics for men being targeted have not gone down either. We've also seen 
a rise across the board in hate crimes in our political climate. So, you know, while we're in a moment where, you know, sort of the 80s mythos of self-defense where, you know, someone's getting mugged in an urban city, those statistics have gone down. There are other things that still threaten us on a day-to-day basis. Wow, one in five. That is really startling. I mean, you get five women in a room and, you know, all of a sudden that statistic becomes really, really real. Yeah. I think that what contributes to the problem today, and I find it so interesting that sort of like the general mugging statistic has gone down, but personal attacks, those figures have not. What I think contributes so much to the problem now, much more so than it did, say, 20 years ago, is we're all so distracted. Like we are so distracted. That is an enormous part of the problem, isn't it? Men, women, it doesn't matter. We're all, we're not paying attention. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely think something that really trips people up is that 80% of bodily awareness and self-defense really is just that. It's it's awareness and being alert. And your mind is your biggest self-defense tool. So if I'm walking down the street, um, whether it's in the middle of the day or it's in the middle of the night, right, that there are certain things that I can do not have in my hand, certain ways that I can look that make me feel safer and also make me appear safer and less susceptible if someone's looking at me. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about prevent and then mm-hmm. let's talk about resist. I think it's so interesting and I accept it as true, just commonsensically, that the energy that you project and the body language that you demonstrate has a great deal to do with whether you're targeted or not. So can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, and I I try not to, I mean, I often like to talk to people about this and say, you know, almost what you said, we're not talking about avoiding victimhood. We're really talking about how do I ensure that I'm a survivor? And that's the perspective that I like to have. And part of the things that we can do for prevention are, number one, pre-planning our trips, for example. So I have a lot of people who, you know, don't necessarily think about the fact that walking with a purpose and knowing your end destination can be really significant when you're walking out into the world. So do I know point A, point B, and point C along my journey? Do I know the different safe spots, right? Do I know the restaurants or the businesses that are open late at night when I'm walking? Do I have any of the numerous safety apps now? So, I mean, as much as technology has gotten people distracted, there are also tech developers who have thought about, well, how can we make technology safer for people? So you can download an app like KiteString or an app like SafeTrack. And SafeTrack is a really interesting app because you can literally put your thumb on your phone and you're going to hold down on your phone until you're to safety. And if at any point you take your thumb off during your route or while you're walking, then that alert is sent to local law enforcement. So that's something to keep in mind. But I always like the classic non-technological advancements, which is just walking with other people or also asking for an escort. A lot of us live in a world where, you know, you can walk with a buddy home from work or if you're associated with any type of institution that has its own security. So if you work at a hospital or you work at a school, right, you can always call public safety and say, hey, I'd like an escort to my car, right, or even like an escort back to my apartment or to my dorm. But even if I don't have those options open to me, Ella, one of the best things that I can do is just continue to be alert and look around me at all times. So, And this is where I tell people, you know, I don't want people to be paranoid. But I just want you to stand tall and keep your eyes open and say, I get to an intersection, just like our moms told us, look both ways before we cross. 
I'm going to look both ways and I'm going to look behind me. That way, if someone's looking to see whether they want to approach me or not, they know that I'm attentive and I know what's going on in my surroundings. Talk to me about how your body language matters in these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that there are conflicting reports, I think, about body language. I'm someone who's on the the side of aggressive body language doesn't help everyone. Um, and so there are some people who say the more aggressive that you look, the safer it helps you make, makes you look or it makes you feel. And I don't actually think that's the case. But I think that standing tall and not looking down at your phone, right, not having both of your earbuds in are things that signal to other people that you're alert and that you're awake. And that if your body looks relaxed, if you don't look tense or lost, those are ways that you can present yourself. So I don't have to go to the extreme of looking really aggressive because oftentimes that Mm -hmm. doesn't help the situation. But I can certainly have a posture that says, right, I'm here in my body and I know if you're going to approach me. I think that's so smart. At the end of the day, we're all animals and we're wired that way. And we sort of emit signals, if you will, just like every other animal in the animal kingdom. And I like what you said, basically, and if I'm capturing this incorrectly, let me know, but your body language and how you carry yourself, it doesn't always help, but it can't hurt. Yes, I think that's perfect. It really, and that's why I always like thinking about it as survivorhood, because I think oftentimes people look back on situations, particularly if they have survived and they say, well, what could I have done better? And really, this is not about, it's not always about what we're doing wrong, right? If there are issues going on beyond us that put us in situations like these. And so I don't ever want us to blame ourselves, but anything that we talk about cannot hurt, you know? So it can't hurt to have your keys in your hands when you're leaving the office to go to the car, when you're leaving the car to go to the front door of your house, right? It can't hurt that you have at least one of your hands unoccupied at all times. Things like that are going to help you. I think that's so smart. And again, I just think it's common sense. And yet we're not always compliant because I can tell you how many times I walk out of the grocery store or some big box store and every hand is full and I'm probably doing something with my phone and my keys are God knows where. And Mm -hmm. I get to the car and I'm sort of shifting everything around to open or unlock. And like, I'm doing everything wrong. And I'm telling myself it's fine because it's broad daylight. And that's just simply not the case. So what I love about some of the message that you're sharing is that these are just the basics Mm -hmm. and they don't take a lot. And it doesn't take a self-defense class to know to walk from A to B purposefully with far less distraction and keeping one hand free at all times. Talk to me more about sort of parking lot strategies, because I think that this is something that we do so frequently that we actually take our safety for granted in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, the good and the bad thing is that there's now a wealth of information concerning personal safety online. And so some of it's good, some of it's not so good. But you can, I mean, any of the information I tell you here, you can also rehear if you ever take a self-defense class. But some of the best things that I've heard people talking about in terms of parking lot safety is, especially if you're a parking garage, for example, you don't always have to take the stairs or the elevator, right? You could actually walk on ramps. And this is even something that translates if you're walking at night and, you know, on a regular street. I mean, oftentimes I've done this myself where I walk in the middle of the street instead of on the sidewalk, right? I walk in the middle of the road. So the same thing applies to a parking lot ramp where I'm walking along the ramp because I don't feel like the stairwell is safe enough or I don't have enough exits. It just gives me enough space to see more of what's around me and also to be able to move quickly if I need to. You know, one of the other things we want to keep in mind is that 
just for extra safety precaution, I can look around my car before I get in my car. I can look through the windows before I get in my car just to make sure that no one is standing around behind me or is, you know, crouched by a wheel. And I can even look at my car from afar. So if I'm parked near one of the elevators that I'm getting off, right, I can walk to the far end of the car and then get in. But just making sure that you look over your shoulder and that no one's around as you're doing this. And even again, right, if there are other people who are walking to their cars at the same time, that that is a great solution. Or if there is extra security that's working at the parking garage that might be able to walk you to your car, that's also something that's extremely helpful. Talk to me about people who exercise and go running or walking on their own, because I have to say, I think I'm so tough and I think I'm so mm-hmm. like practical. And yet I can't tell you how many times I go for a run in just complete isolation with nothing on my person. And I'm sort of running going, gosh, I guess this was kind of silly. I mean, I don't even always have a phone with me. Like, What do you tell people who you know sort of run, bike, or, or do that type of isolated exercise? Yeah, absolutely. And if I could tack on it, you know, I always keep forgetting to say, but for the car, as soon as you get into the car, you want to lock the doors immediately. That's always something that, you know, that's not necessarily, we're all like, oh, of course I'm going to do it. But I should just want to tack that on to the car safety. But absolutely. If you're one of those amazing people that, you know, runs consistently every day, I mean, yeah, I think that. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> <laughs> the same safety definitely applies. So, if I'm going to run, particularly I know a lot of, I used to live in New York City. A lot of people used to run in parks. And of course, you know, now we know New York is one of the large, safest large cities in the country. But if I'm running, I want to pick a particular type of day or time of day where I'm going to be around other people. Or even if it's in the woods, you know, in the countryside, am I walking along a path in the woods where I can easily exit? where I can see businesses, where I can see other people, right? If I'm in that park and it's at dusk and it's starting to get dark out, am I running along the lit park? Uh, the And so by lit, I mean, are there lights in the park that I can run under, right? And so again, am I going to run a section that I've run before, right? And so a when is the right time to say, oh, I'm going to take this new detour and try this new path that I haven't done before. So I always want to know where my safety points are along my run route. And then Even if you're running along a street, same thing, you know, even if you're running down your street, which neighbor do I know is home at this point during the day? All right. And there are so many things that we can do too, like carry running mace in these apps that you mentioned. I'll link to those. And if you have any more, Mariam, at the end of the show, you can send those to me and I'll share them with everybody. But I'll link to KiteString and I will link to SafeTrack because that's actually new information for me. I also know that if I'm running in the woods, for example, and I think, oh, I guess this was kind of stupid. I do, in fact, sort of run the scenario through my head. Well, what would I do? What if somebody (laughs) appeared in front of me? What would I do? And I actually pay very close attention to my surroundings and which direction I would actually take off in. Mm -hmm. And again, like I don't need to be putting myself in those situations, but also we're out there living in the real world. I'm not going to wrap myself in cotton wool and, you know, live under a, a rock. But Mariam, I just think so much of this is just about being alert, aware, and kind of paying attention. So I thank you for that. We've talked about parking lots, parking garages, shopping, exercising. What about just around your home, even when you're coming home or leaving your home? Do you have any advice for us in that context? 
Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few things we could say. I think that my key rule is really important. So even if it's broad daylight in front of my home, as soon as I get to the door, I want to have my keys out, you know, or if I live in a building that has a key code, I don't have so many things in my hand that I can't punch the key code into it as soon as I get in. And I would say that the self-defense law also changes when you get to your house. And so, you know, if someone tries to attack you while you're on your property or you're in your home, you have everything within your capacity to actually defend yourself because they're attacking you in your home. But I mean, the other reason I really do like to talk about home spaces is that, you know, the other myths about self-defense is that oftentimes we're, the, the myth is that we're more likely to be or potentially hurt by someone we don't know. And when in fact, We know from statistics that you're more likely to be hurt by someone that you've had a conversation with or someone that you know or someone that you're related to. And so oftentimes we think that the street is more dangerous, but we really want to think and say that domestic spaces are just as important when thinking about bodily awareness and who could potentially be trying to hurt me. So how do you counsel people in that regard? Yeah, I mean, the hardest thing to do is to tell people that someone that you know or you that whose face you recognize is actually more dangerous to you than someone who isn't. And so part of what I tell people is that um, they say to me, Mariam, you know, I'm really fearful when I think about someone trying to hurt me that I don't know. But then I don't know what I would do if I had to stand up to someone that is even just an acquaintance or a coworker or a relative. And I think part of it also is just about, you know, really knowing the people that you surround yourself with and, you know, their politics of love and self-love and how they treat other people will really give you an indication of how safe you are with them. And if you don't feel safe around a relative or an acquaintance or even someone that you're dating, I think that that's a sign, right? And that we should always listen to ourselves. I think this is even more important and relevant this day and age when so many people are meeting people online and arranging encounters with those people and whether it's just a casual date or whether they think they know somebody because they've been talking with them online and then they arrange a date or whatever. We're having all sorts of encounters where there's this familiarity we think we have, but we don't know that person. And so how are you working with people and what are you telling them with regard to preventing and reducing your vulnerability when it comes to meeting people and this type of encounter? What are some things we can do? I mean, let's just talk like internet dating, Mariam, just to keep it, you know, really basic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people have written really great articles about how to stay safe during internet dating. And I would say that first and foremost, I mean, one of the best things you're always going to be able to do is to meet that person at a neutral location. And I think this is whether you meet them on whether you meet them online or if someone has introduced you to right, a mutual friend has introduced you that all of your dates are on neutral territory, right, that I don't necessarily invite them into my personal space and my home space when I'm first getting to meet someone. And I, I don't give too many personal details about where I live in that regard. But also, I tell people with everything, it's about listening and listening to how the person talks to you, talks about themselves, and talks about people in their lives, right? And so, you know, this is, again, prevention, because a lot of times people will surprise us, right? I mean, there are plenty of people who say that, you know, I never would have thought that my partner, my boyfriend, my girlfriend could have done something to harm me or to hurt me, right? Or even my friend. But if we're listening to things that that we say, or even just looking at their bodily reactions to certain situations, that that can give us just a little bit more of a safety inkling to say, I should really, you know, I should just keep an extra eye, or I should just even ask them questions, right? So 
you know, how do you feel about such and such a thing? Like, there's always this idea of, well, it just comes down to whether or not you think that person will hit you or harm you. But, you know, we don't necessarily need a history of having hurt someone to be able to do it, right? And so it's really about what does that person stand in terms of their own emotions, right? When they get angry, how do they respond, right? Do they take things out on you? Because I mean, even oftentimes just the verbal, so even if someone never hurts you, but being verbally aggressive, right? And physically violating your personal space. So just maybe they don't touch you, but getting so close to you that you have to shrink in your own size. That's something that's affecting your bodily safety. So those are things to keep in mind, but any of these situations can arise. And so you always have the right to tell someone that you've invited into your comfort zone to say they have to leave, right? You always have the right to say, I'm no longer comfortable. I'm not comfortable with you being this close. I'm not comfortable with you touching me this way. You know, someone, there's a classic hand grab that we see a lot, particularly in popular culture, you know, that someone starts to walk away and someone grabs their wrist to show that they're, no, you know, I'm not done talking. I really want to talk to you. And sometimes it's put in this very romantic light, but really that's a way of someone saying, I'm trying to violate your control of your own body, right? So we also just have to rethink some of the physical signs we think are romantic gestures. You know, if you have someone who keeps trying to pester you, right, and chase you, that may not be as great as it was in the rom-com. So (laughs) I think it's also so important, Mariam, to pay attention to how they treat other people. Because obviously, when you're in the sunshiny stage with somebody, you're getting the best of them. I mean, if you're not, then just like take that under advisement immediately. But Mm -hmm. when you're in that romance stage or the honeymoon phase, pay attention to how they treat other people or how they speak about people that they're close to or people that are bugging them. Because Mm -hmm. I believe how you treat somebody is how you can treat anybody. Meaning if they're talking about their mom in really derisive terms or somebody that they used to date or anything Mm -hmm. like that, then that's in them. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. All right. A couple of other things that I've seen and read and I'd love for you to comment on is if you're just to go back to sort of our internet dating example or just dating period and having people encounters, if you're in a situation and you've gone through the trouble to meet them during daylight hours, you haven't shared a bunch of your personal details with them and you are meeting in neutral territory, things can still go awry or you can still get that vibe, right, Mariam? Absolutely. I just want to remind people that you can ask for help. So you can go to the restroom and as you're headed back there, you can just tell a server or tell someone at the bar, you know, I need help. Can someone follow me in here? Or I know, and maybe you can speak to this. I know that some bars have gotten savvy to this and there's some drink you can order, which is essentially like a 911 drink order. Do you know anything about that, Mariam? Oh, I do not, Ella, but I'm going to go look that up as soon as we finish talking. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes since I don't have the details here. But basically... In the restroom, it says, if things aren't going well, order the following drink at the bar and we'll get you out of it. Like, don't even worry. (laughs) And I was like, that is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Honestly, really, I mean, it takes self-defense is not just a person, right? So we're not just talking about the person who could be harmed, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about, you know, the person who could be doing the potential harming, right? We're talking about the restaurants. Everyone is involved. And how can we minimize the likelihood of these situations across the board. And communication is great. Our voices are great. And literally just saying to someone, you know what, I don't want to be here. You can say that. I don't want to be here anymore and I'm going to leave, right? And if they try to get close to you, I mean, you always have the right to say, no, I don't want you to come any closer, right? And you can signal to them by walking away, by putting your hands in between you and them, right? I mean, a lot of times people just assume 
that they can get as close to us as humanly possible, right? And you can tell them, hey, stop, you know, I don't want you to come any closer. You can say to other people, I don't feel safe, right? You can walk to the owner of an establishment and say, I'm going to leave my date. I'm not sure that I feel safe just in case they walk me out of here. But absolutely, communication is key. Even I tell people all the time, if you're ever worried about your safety or whether you're just going to be able to get back, just let someone know where you're going, right? I mean, this is something that I appreciate. My parents telling me that, you know, they'll be happy to know that now I finally have learned. But, you know, even as a second degree black belt, letting people know, hey, this is when I'm supposed to be home safely. This is who I'm with. This is where I'm at. And this can be a friend. This can be your roommate, right? So that your roommate knows. A lot of us, you know, if you're particularly if you're in your teens, 20s or 30s, you know, however old you are and you still have a roommate, let that person know. Don't be the TV show joke where it's like, oh, I haven't seen my roommate in 48 hours. You know, we want to actually be aware and make sure that we're looking out for each other. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And let me share with you one of the things that I do when I catch an Uber. So so Ooh, I yes. don't date because, <laughs> you know, it would irritate my husband. <laughs> but I've been known to take an Uber a time or two. And when the driver's name and uh, plate number comes up in the app, I screenshot it and I text that photo to my husband or whomever I'm meeting or whomever makes the most sense at that moment. And that's just a super, super simple thing to do. I take the screenshot. I'm like, here's who's driving me, FYI. And somebody else in the world has that information and they don't need to do anything with it unless they need to do anything with it. And you can carry that logic into dating or into meeting someone on business. I mean, anything. You can capture their information and just text it to your buddy and just be like, here's where I'm going. Just FYI, don't know this person, wanted somebody to be aware of what I was. Like everybody has a person they can send that information to. And if you don't, you can make me your person. <laughs> well, I, that, I mean, that's really well said, Ella. And I mean, even if you're going on Craigslist and you're you're buying your vintage 1974 Ooh, bike, you know, yes. you want to like, this is the address to where I'm going. This is the person that I'm supposed to be meeting. But 100%, I mean, I've had, I think I first experienced this Uber phenomenon two or three years ago, and I got a text message from my sister, and it said, Maisha Aziz is on a trip. And I said, well, what do you mean she's on a trip? And I clicked on it, and she was able to share her Uber itinerary with me. And I actually think that, depending on your device, you might also be able to track the trip. So I could see for her entire 10-minute journey where she was in the car ride. And I said, wow this is amazing. Oh, I didn't even know that. And let me tell you something. I've caught some late night Ubers all by my little self. So that's actually really good to know. And by the way, I am, and I suspect you are as well, I am fiercely independent. And the idea of somebody needing to track me bugs me to death. And I know a lot of people share their location all the time. And that's not me. Like, I just, I don't want a leash. I don't want an electronic leash, anything of that nature. But when it comes to this, this is a different category of stuff. So my message to all those independent thinkers out there is that's great, but who are you going to call when you're in that Uber at 1130 and he makes a left turn when he's supposed to make a right turn. And now you don't know where you're going. And by the way, I'm not sorry, Uber, this isn't about you, (laughs) (laughs) but you get the idea. And so from someone who has like an allergic reaction to reporting my every movement, I will say, let's let some common sense apply here. And there are just such easy, easy ways to let people know where you are these days. I mean, it's honestly, it's easier than ever and more important than ever, I would argue. Oh, and I mean, I mean, Ella, you have me pegged 100%. I am definitely that person who said, no, no, I don't need to check in. And my family have jokes about me about you know, we never know where you are. You know, where are you? You know, what state are you in currently? What city? But it definitely, as I've gotten over, I've realized the value of it um, and realized that 
My parents were not nagging me, right? This is about safety and we're still independent, right? You're not going to affect your independent state, independentness. I'm not sure what that noun is. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take it. We'll Um, take it. Right. By just by checking in and letting someone know, hey, I'm at the train stop right now. It takes me about five minutes to walk home. If you haven't heard from me, just send me a, a text message or a quick call, right? You know, you're not asking people to go out of their way and change your day. You're not completely changing your life, right? You're still able to do all the badass things you need to do. And this is actually just making you even more of a badass, right? Couldn't have said it better. And we're going to talk in just a moment about resistance and evasion. But Mariam, you're just reminding me of one thing for the exercisers out there. And that is that every time I go out, if I ride my bike, you know, when you ride a bike, a road bike, it doesn't matter what country my husband's in, because we both travel a lot. I will just text him and be like, I'm headed out. I'll let you know when I get back. And it's not always my husband. Sometimes it's somebody else. Again, it depends on the context. But I also always carry, I keep my expired driver's license and I put them in my different exercise stuff. So if I'm running, I have an expired license in my bike and I actually have another one in my running belt. Also a road ID, those bracelets, which I'll link to guys, but the road ID that you can personalize and just has your information on it. And these, again, I don't consider myself a particularly worried or paranoid person, but these are just super, super simple things that just help you out. If you need them, you need them. And if you don't, what did it cost you? And I'm definitely here to affirm that again, right? I mean, the favorite part of my job of being a self-defense instructor is letting people know that you can handle almost everything that gets thrown at your way, right? You know, we're not in a Fast and Furious movie, you know, so um, you can absolutely handle almost anything the world is throwing at you. So let's talk about the exception. And, and I appreciate you setting this up that way, because at the end of the day, like it doesn't pay to make us all nervous. And that's absolutely not what we want to do. But if we can help even just one person, or again, if somebody shares this with somebody who happens to find it useful at some point in their life, that's a win. And I'll tell you, as someone who spends a lot of time not surrounded by groups, I mean, I'll, I run, I bike, I go to different cities. I sometimes look clueless when I'm trying to walk around that city. (laughs) I'm alert to the fact that if I'm sitting there staring at my phone, trying to figure out where the heck I'm going, that sets me up. Like that makes me more uh, vulnerable than if I step into a coffee shop, figure out where I'm going, step back out again, and then go out into the world. Just paying attention, great idea. But let's talk about the exception. Let's talk about when resistance and evasion is useful and some of the very, very simple things that we can do. And then you can tell us a little bit after that about like what you do so we can maybe find a resource like you in our own markets. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, you know, it's hard to to ever predict what's going to happen. But I have my general self-defense safety tips that I like to share with people. Oh, cool. And so, you know, once we go beyond being alert, right, if I'm actually in a situation where I come face to face with someone, my first two things are actually going back to that hands up that we talked about a couple of minutes ago to tell someone to to back off or that they can't enter my personal space. And people really underestimate how much the defense and self-defense matters. But a lot of times when people get unrivaled access to our body is when we can't keep them at a distance. And so I always just pick my hands up so that way my palms are across from my jawbone or my jawline, because that's really one of the most susceptible places on our body that people tend to try and hurt us, right? And so that jawbone can be very weak. So I pick my palms up, right? Just so that they're across. And I wanna make sure that I keep my hands in between myself and the other person at all times. So this is one about creating distance. It's two about making sure that 
they can't just grab me or hit me in any place in my body without me having a little bit of defense. The second thing I would say is that, you know, move. You know, our legs are beautiful, wonderful tools. They're extremely strong no matter who we are. And our hips are honestly one of the best things that have ever been created or have ever existed. So no matter who you are, no matter what your body type is, and no matter who you might be defending yourself against, your hips and your legs are always going to be really powerful. Your hips and your thighs and your quadriceps are extremely powerful, and they're really about the only weapon you need to be able to defend yourself. So the first thing I'm going to let my hips do is I'm going to let them get me out of the way. So sometimes when we flinch and we get really afraid, right, I stay there. And so if that person is trying to hurt me, if I'm right in front of them, I'm taking 100% of that grab or that strike. But if I'm able to move out of the way and I'm even able to move on a line at a diagonal, right, on an angle away from that person, that means that they can't back me into a corner. They can't keep just hitting. Mm. And this way I set myself up to be able to move into my offense. So hands up and move is really, again, that's a significant part of the physical things that we're going to be able to do. Because sometimes that also just surprises people, right? Oftentimes, if someone's looking for someone to hurt or trying to come after, they're not expecting you to be alert and aware. So as soon as you make a beeline out of the way and your hands go up, that's a second where they then have to reevaluate, okay, am I going to continue to do what I thought I was going to do? Because now my plans changed. Okay, I think this is really important because if you're not driving, guys, and you're listening, I want you to just put one hand up or two hands <laughs> up in front of you with your palms out and just feel what that feels like. Can you tell I'm doing it right now? And it feels very strong, but also it creates a clear signal and a physical barrier. And let's use a real life example because this has happened to me before. I'm sure it's happened to other people. You're in a parking lot and somebody approaches you and maybe they just want money. Maybe they're perfectly harmless, but still like you get that gut instinct, right? And you feel like you get a little bit of fear on the back of your neck. And, you know, women were so polite. <laughs> we're so, we're apologetic and we're polite. And it feels weird to some people to sort of react like aggressively. And yet, it could be a pretty smart thing to do, Mariam. And so I'm just picturing like if you put your hands up and you're like, what do you need even? You know, even if you don't feel like someone's about to take you down and you just sort of physically communicate a barrier, I just, I keep doing it. Can you hear it in my voice? Like, oh, I, I, I keep like punching my hands in the air. And then you're pointing out that we have lateral movement, which is something that we yeah. don't always think of. Okay, okay, I like it. And I've also heard that if you use your voice right in that moment when someone approaches you, and frankly, like I know this might not be politically correct, Mariam, but if someone's approaching me in a parking lot and all they do need is money and I'm the first person to help somebody out at a gas station or help somebody out at an intersection and like give them food or give them money, like no problem. But if someone's approaching me in a dimly lit parking lot, I don't really care what they need because right now that's not my problem. Can you speak to that? Because I think we're very apologetic in circumstances that make us uncomfortable. Do you want to agree or disagree with me? What do you think? Well, no, I think you're hitting on something that's really important, Ella. And that's really just about socialization and the way that, you know, society brings up, you know, particularly young men and young women differently. And definitely if you're raised as a woman, as a young girl, you're taught that you want to be more apologetic and mm -hmm. sorry. And oftentimes if you're raised as a man or a young boy, right, you don't have that same issue. And so you're correct that it doesn't matter who is approaching you, right? I don't know who this person is. And that's really the important part is that I treat everyone that I don't know the same way, right? So 
if we're on a dimly lit street and I don't know you, right? I don't care if you're, uh, if you have on an Armani suit, right? Or right, not, right? right. So it could be the opposite where you right. seemingly look like you're, right? And, up, you know, this quote unquote idea of an upstanding citizen. And so I don't know anything about you. And you're absolutely right that I have the right to say, hey, don't come any closer now. Can you hear my hands going up, Ella? So, hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I mean, from there, I mean, we can even just talk about, right, once those hands are up, they're never going down, right, until that person, so that person needs to stay where they are, first off, right? So if they keep walking toward me, if they keep trying to reach out for me, that's a sign for me that I might need to go beyond just the defense stage. And I usually say to people, this hands are up and then moving laterally, that's my, and my voice, right, just to say, I'm not copacetic with anything that's happening. That's my base level of de-escalation. If they keep making you feel afraid, right, and legitimately so, right, we're not talking about, you know, a 10-year-old is making you, right, is approaching you, right? (laughs) We're talking about someone that is making you fear for your physical bodily autonomy that you're not approaching, that's approaching you, right? Then I get to say, okay, now I really feel unsafe. And particularly if they're reaching out for me, if they're trying to strike me, what are the safe things that I can use now that my hands are up? All right. So tell me, so where do we go from there? If you really do, now you know you're not in a safe situation. What do you like to tell people next? Absolutely. Well, this is the fun part, but this is where we get to pick on the guys for a second. You know, the best part about popular culture is that it it gives us so many wrong things about self-defense. So if you ever think of any classic fight you've ever seen on TV, or even, you know, I've watched hours of street fight compilation videos. I don't recommend that anyone else does this, but as a researcher, (laughs) I've done this. And so immediately people go to their upper body. People start swinging. They go for the haymaker, the right hook, any of the punches. And so I tell people, again, across all body types and across all genders, your upper body is not as strong naturally as your lower bodies. Mm -hmm. Even though my hands are up, that punch or that haymaker is not my first line of fence. My first line of defense are actually my lower legs, my kicks and my knees. And I tell people when I'm thinking about striking, I'm thinking about what is a safe strike for me to use and what's going to be a weak point on someone else's body. Right. So I don't want to sit there and hit someone on a plate like in their, you know, their shoulder, their arm. Right. Because someone can rebound from that. I want to go someplace like the knee, for example. Right. I tell people this in my classes all the time. You're not going to be able to develop six-pack abs around your knee, right? The kneecap (laughs) is never going to get stronger than it is currently. So I teach people basic front kicks. So if you think that you've got your heel, your monk strap, or your boot on, if I just tap the bottom of my foot and I feel there's this really hard part below your toes called the ball of your foot. So not the toes, but right below it, there's Mm -hmm. the ball, right? I can pick my leg up and kick someone in the knee with all of my, oh yeah, oh yeah. (laughs) And what I'm actually still doing again is I'm bringing back in those hips. So even if I've only got, I'm not doing, you know, this is not martial arts class. I'm not going to put my leg, you know, about three or four feet behind me, but I'm going to pick it up. So that way I'm thrusting my hips forward. And so my entire body weight led by my hips and my thighs is crashing into that person's kneecap or into their shins. And I'm going to do that repeatedly. So I tell people, I'm never just going to hit someone once. I'm going to do it two or three times to make sure that I'm actually getting them. 
And then even if you're off to the side of the person, let's say that you you had a very nice, long lateral movement away from them, even if they're still approaching you from the side, I can pick my leg up to my hip crease and I can stomp down with the bottom part of my foot onto their kneecap as Whoa. well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so glad this isn't on video. I'm like making every face. <laughs> well, and I mean, honestly, this is, and this is before, this is usually the face that people give me in classes before we've even tried it. And they're like, oh my gosh. And I'm like, you know, see, but see how easy it is to think that, you know, it doesn't matter how tall the person is or even if they're bigger than you or not, right? That kneecap is always going to be weak. And so, I tell people, you want to go for that. So kicks are always going to be my first thing. After kicks, I've got knees, right? If somehow you're still in front of the person, you're going to use your kneecap, kicking, hitting the person to the groin, no matter who they are. I can tell you from personal experience. Yeah, that'll that, shut it down. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and re- honestly, it doesn't matter who you are, no. right? <laughs> <laughs> anybody oh, who's that- ever fallen on a bike knows that that'll oh. take anybody out. Oh, no. Oh, gosh. Yes, it will. So knees are great. So I always say people go to your lower body first, right? And then I tell people the best thing to know is that think about the, you know, averages, I guess. The average person across all genders is, I believe, around 5'10, you know? So again, it's not six foot three, six foot four all the time, right? This could be someone that you very well well be able to look into the eyes. And so if that's the case, I go around and I show people this is the height of someone's kneecap who's 5'10, 5'9, right? And it's definitely because people tell me all the time, you know, Mariam, I can't kick someone in the face. I'm not Bruce Lee. And I said, I don't want you to be Bruce Lee and I want you to be Jackie Chan. Right. I just want you to be able to kick as high as someone's kneecap. And if you go, if you go and just look at someone who's five nine, you'll see that you are able to either hit the top of their kneecap, the bottom of the kneecap or the middle of the shin. OK, that- but I have read that um, men are more likely to protect their groin area. And so I love that you're mentioning the kneecap because you know, if you're just watching TV or a movie or something, you know, self-defense is like kick them in the groin and run, and slap them or, you know, use your hands. And so I love that you're pointing out the stronger parts of our bodies, which are our feet, our kicks, our own knees. And then I suppose if you're using upper body, I, I would imagine that your elbow is going to be far more effective than like the palm of your hand. Well, actually, Ella, so fun fact. So you're on the right track. So I'm taking your punch out of your toolkit. So that's what I call my toolkit completely. But your palm heel is actually, so your elbow is by far very strong. But your palm heel is actually my favorite secret weapon, just because it's a little bit easier to throw than the elbow, and it gives you a little more distance. So usually you have to be closer to throw the elbow. But the palm heel, even if you just, everyone who's listening, Ella, I'm going to do it because this is my favorite exercise. If you take your palms and you smack them together, right, there's a reason that we use the palm heel as our defense when we keep our hands up. And if I actually take the bottom hard part of the palm and I use my hips and I throw my entire body into that strike, I can strike the person in the jaw. Or if they're very tall, I can strike them in the rib cage. And that palm heel is actually going to generate a lot of force. But you're right. It goes elbow very strong, but not great if you want to keep your distance. And then palm heel, very strong, good for distance. Punch, not so great because I could break the wrist. Okay. I love this. All right. So, and I'm still cringing, but I just think this is really (laughs) useful information. And is it true that if you're in close contact, like God forbid you you are actually in far too close a contact, you want to aim for the soft spaces? Like people protect their groin more than they would protect their throat, for example, or even their eyes. What, What do you have to say about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's a lot of conflicting reports, but any of those weak spots are going to be good. So, I mean, throat works well. Even so, you've got numerous weak points on the face. So other than that jaw, if you hit someone, you know, if it's to say I take that palm here and elbow right to, you know, their temple, right, you can affect someone's vision. Or if they're taller than I am, just think about hitting someone in the chin. So close to close quarter combat, I tell someone, you know, if you're shorter than the person who's trying to hurt you, that might actually be an advantage because the taller they are, the harder they fall is the truest wisdom that's ever been passed down. And so even if I just use the all of my hip power and I take my elbow and I just hit it upward onto someone's chin, that's going to really hurt them. So the chin is very weak, that jaw, the throat, the temple, right? Even in front of the ears or behind the ears to affect the hearing. And if they are to happen to be very tall, if we're talking about soft spots, the baby floating rib is the very bottom part of your rib cage. And so if you're in close, if you elbow someone in that very bottom part of the rib cage, if they're 6'2", that's going to hurt even the kidneys on the back of the person. So definitely you want to go for the weak spots. And I mean, I think eyes are great. I wouldn't just solely rely on eyes. You know, I never know how much pain tolerance someone has. So the amount of power that I can generate through someone's jaw is really hard. You know, if I miss the eyes, for example, I only get one eye, right? They are able to fight back, but there are people who love to go for the nose as well. And I say, that's a great spot, but I say pick multiple spots, you know, two or three strikes, to each spot. That way, you know, if you do happen to hurt their nose seriously, but they still keep attacking you, you've got another line of defense. So the best thing about this is that there are thousands of different things that you can do. And that person doesn't know that you know how to do them. This is making, first of all, it's making my cortisol rise. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) My blood pressure's up. And two, it's making me want to run out and find the first self-defense class that I can. So I want to ask you a question about that. But first, first, Mariam, I have one more question. And it's kind of, if this is out of your wheelhouse, just tell me, but basically if someone's accosted near their car, which, which does happen mm-hmm. a lot, I say, relative to other types of non-domestic dangers, you're putting your key in your car and someone comes up to you in the parking lot, that sort of thing. I have heard that, you know, dropping and rolling under your car is an option. I don't know if it's a smart option. I suppose you have to really judge in that moment and follow your instincts because if they have a gun, if they have a knife, like I'm dropping and rolling under the car. But if they have a gun, that doesn't sound useful. And I know that is very hard. I know this for a fact. It's mm-hmm. not that easy to shoot somebody. And it's really not that easy to shoot a running target because mm-hmm. most people just aren't that great shots. So do you have any comments to make there? Yeah, I mean, I could say some things briefly. I mean, there are people who train uh, their whole lives to really talk to you about the nitty gritty of weapon okay. self defense. And it honestly is still statistically unlikely, you know, having an aggravated assault is less likely than other things. But sure. What I can say is that from my understanding, right, it depends on the situation. If that person is coming up to you and they just want your wallet and your iPhone and they have Get that it. gun. <laughs> Hand yes, it over. Work it over. Here you, you know? go. It's your day. Here you go. <laughs> Ex- absolutely. Particularly because now, I mean, you know, we people have tracked my phone. I mean, you know, you can cancel your credit card simpler now than you ever could before. So hand it over. I mean, I was just doing my own. That's great. That's a great point. Yeah. But I mean, but that changes, you know, depending. So if it's a basic robbery, I always tell people, you know, do not fight back. Right. Here you go. Take it all. (laughs) Yeah. Take it all. If this really is one of those unlikely, very unlikely situations where it is almost a, 
you know, a kidnapping or someone Mm -hmm. wants to make you drive to another location. There are people that say, right, that you do not want to comply with the order. So let's say that they got you in the car with the gun and they're trying to take you to a second location. You know, there's people, there are plenty of people who have theorized that given their experience in law enforcement, your best thing is to not drive to the exact location that they want you to. And that sometimes they recommend that you actually start to speed up because they say that someone doesn't want to shoot you if you're going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, right? And that you then drive to a place that's crowded and you begin to slow down and you can honk the horn and say, hey, you know what, draw attention to the person because the things that they don't want to crash with themselves in the passenger seat, they don't want other people to know that they're holding you hostage. But again, so those are vastly different situations. And I think that your best bet is really, if you're concerned about hostage situations, that there are people who teach classes, you know, there are people who are better experts in, you know, hostage situations than I am. But absolutely, I'm not sure that rolling under the car would work. But I tell people all the time, as long as you get out safely, right, as long as you can get yourself (laughs) safely, you did something correctly. But if you feel like that person has the intention to kill you, right, then all bets are off, right? And so compliance is not necessarily going to, and this could be in any situation where they're holding a gun to your head, right? If their intention is not to rob you, but it is to harm you permanently, right, then compliance may not be your best option. If they're approaching you from the car and they don't have a gun or a knife, right, and they're just trying to grab you, Mm -hmm. I mean, again, if that's close quarter combat, You've got your elbows, you've got your feet, I mean, stomping to the instep, to the shin, letting the elbows fly behind you. But, you know, again, this is where taking a class or taking a course really comes in handy because we'd have to sit down for hours and sort of, you know, strategize what's the best thing for every possible 10,000 situation that I could get into. Yeah, fair enough. And I went a little bit outside the scope asking you that question, but it's super interesting, I think, for people to talk about it. And what I can do is I can research a couple of resources and link to those, everyone, in the uh, in the show notes. But let me get back, Mariam, to your wheelhouse. You teach self-defense. Yeah. What should we be looking for? I'm going to share your videos with folks, Mariam, but what should we be looking for if we're looking for a class to go to locally? Yeah, for sure. So I teach basic self-defense classes. And so if you're looking not for, you know, how to avoid being a hostage one-on-one, because those are very advanced classes you have to look for. But if you're like, what do I need to do for 90% of situations that I could find? You can either take a crash course self-defense class, or you can sign up for a local martial arts class. And I think that this is actually, a, you know, a sort of a controversial opinion that I have in sort of the modern day world. But Um, What I typically do is I do a three-hour crash course self-defense, and this is common. You can take a course that'll show you what are the safe ways to strike. We'll give you practice hitting a hand target, which is really important, just because you don't want the first time that you've ever, right, hit something to be in the moment. And we teach you, right, how do you get out of if someone tries to pin you to the ground? How do you avoid being struck in the face? How do you get out of this type of grab? So you can take courses that are anywhere from three hours to really intensive 20-hour courses that will give you a crash course in self-defense and will give you tools to walk away with and practice. So those are readily available. If you walk into a self-defense course and they're teaching you from a vantage point of weaknesses, so because you're short, you can't do this, so do this, you want to walk in the other direction. Because what I do in my classes is I say, 
what's universally safe for everyone, right? No matter your gender, no matter your size, no matter your ability, and no matter who's attacking you. And then I would say, I actually am a fan of regular martial arts classes. And I'll tell you why, Ella. I mean, you could do both. You could do a self-defense crash course like mine to get you some tools that you can practice. And then you want to go look for a regular martial arts class. And it's not that you know, every martial arts class gives you readily applicable self-defense techniques. And that's a critique, but they're not meant to, right? The reason that martial arts are arts is that you're supposed to learn them over a long period of time because you're developing your body and you're developing your willpower and your confidence. Because at the end of the day, right, I can guarantee you that you can fight your way out of most situations, but developing the willpower and the belief in yourself, that's something that takes training. And so you may be able to get some of that in a weekend crash course. But for me, the benefit of having done this for over, you know, 12, 13 years is that confidence has been instilled in me. And I know what it's like to, you know, to get hit a little bit, to hit and also to stand up to something. And so it honestly doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you know, I used to, I have to say, I used to be a hater of aerobic kickboxing and I, you know, it's still not necessarily the best self-defense class, but anything that gets you in touch with your body, right? You don't need to get into the uh, the conversations that, you know, martial arts black belts have of, oh, who's the better, you know, martial art? It's about what instructor makes you feel safe and welcome? What is their pedagogy? And do they make you feel excluded or weak at any point? And if not, can you grow stronger mentally, physically, and spiritually? And really, that's what's going to help you. So you can take Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you can take traditional karate, you can take Aikido, something that's going to make you feel better. And then you can also take something that has, you know, more, this is a situation by situation self-defense class. And some, you know, martial arts schools will have both. Okay, that's great input. And I will say from personal experience that if you call somebody who does provide self-defense classes, and you can get a group together. So a lot of people are a part of any kind of group, whether it's your running club or your professional network, or I mean, any group of people, then you can pull your resources and that person can sometimes come to you or hold a class just for you. So I would encourage people to approach this stuff as a group if in addition to considering this as an option for them individually. So that said, Mariam, I know we're running short on time here. Tell us a little bit more about how we can learn more about you, where to find you and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So. I'm definitely on Facebook, so you can connect with me there if you want to find out. So I believe it's just Mariam Aziz, and you can connect and find me and find where I'm teaching classes. You can also go to the Women's Initiative for Self-Empowerment page. So again, I'm the uh, Chief Self-Defense Instructor for WISE, and we hold classes and self-defense workshops regularly. Look for us, see if we're in your local community. If not, send us a message, right? So you can as an email, you can shoot us a message on that Facebook page that says, hey, when are you coming to this city, right? And again, if you're thinking about people where you're saying, I want to bring someone in, I've got a group of people I can train. I just recently went to North Carolina just because I, you know, I met a friend at a retreat and they said, hey, would you come to North Carolina and do some trainings? And they got a group of people together, came and funded me and I came down. So it's definitely something that we can work with you for. And while you're on that journey, definitely go check out the Self-Defense Starter Kit. So I think it's, you know, www.selfdefensestarterkit.com. And just look at some of the videos. We've got eight, I think so, or eight or so great self-defense videos that are basics, you know, how to get out of a hand grab or how to get out of if, you know, someone grabs your your head or a head covering, how to, you know, avoid multiple strikes to the face. So there's some basic stuff that you can check out online while you're trying to figure out what you want to do more in person. 
All right. Fantastic. Mariam, thank you so much. We will be sure to send people your way. And guys, if there was ever an episode for sharing, this would be it. So spread the word. Thanks, Mariam. Ella, you've been amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Catch you later. Bye. Bye bye. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, just go to onairwithella.com where I put up links to all of the good stuff that we talked about today and more information about our guests and all the good stuff that you did not need to write down today because I got you covered. Don't forget to join our Facebook page and thanks for those phenomenal reviews in iTunes. Every great review helps and we read every one. Thanks for listening and thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.